Welcome back to the Docu Podcast, Shadow of a Mercenary. I'm your host, Kevin E. West, and it's time to get on board and journey into the unique life of Verlin Siefkees, a Kansas crop duster who simply enjoyed painting his daughter's toenails on their porch. But hell, it's easy to be betrayed when no one knows you exist. Well, Verlin, I think it is terrific that you've been kidnapped and you've been nothing more but a staunch smartass with the cartel boys and no one has killed you yet, which to me just kind of goes to show without any real life specific training for this, you had a natural sense of how to play this game. And in the 28 days that you were in captivity, they didn't torture you. No. Um, Stockwell got more sick. Stockwell got more sick and he. I told him to just play it up. I said, we'll trap you with words because you're you're not watching what you're what you're saying i mean it's got to match our situation you can't just give them some bogus bullshit that isn't going to store up the next day they'll say something else and the next day they'll say something else and if you forget what you said three days ago and it doesn't match there and you're in trouble you may have been on edge but you may have been calm about it but during your captivity berlin did you did glenn talk to you did you talk to glenn about how scared he was about him being afraid of dying, did you guys have dialogue about that from his perspective? Oh, we had dialogue about it. He was pretty sure they were going to kill us. And uh, what I had to do was keep him. He thought that the government was going to come save our ass. And I said, listen, Stockwell, I said, they think you're sick. You're an old man and you're sick. I said, these guys are trying to trip you up. I see them ask you a question. And then the next day they ask you another question. And if you don't answer it right, they're getting a list of questions. And you're not going to answer them right three days down the road, and it's not going to match up, and they're going to catch our ass at this. So it was hard to keep him from realizing that he was not in the ready room in the Air Force shooting the shit with other pilot buddies and that they were going to come storming in and rescue our ass. Was Glenn Stockwell every day afraid of dying, yes or no? No. What was your daily life like for the 28 days? I mean, just, I know that you had occasional baths, but... What did you guys do all day long? Oh, hell, we talked. We walked around that damn ranch a little bit with the guards. Uh, we tried to get a phone call. We tried to get on the two-meter radio. Uh, we just talked about what we were going to do or trying to do if something happened. Well, there wasn't anything to do. I okay. mean, we're sitting there at a, a hut in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's... Gotcha. And if I'm not incorrect, there came a moment for you somewhere in all this craziness early on, I think, when you didn't want to count on anything... So you decided to try and escape-ish, right? Oh, I thought I'd try it for a little bit. We were up on that ranch, and they had horses. And I said, hey, I want to ride one of your horses. So I took the horse and took off. And, and uh, But it was way up in the scrub brush, and it was a long ways off. And I figured, well, if I leave, they'll shoot old Stockwell for sure, because he'll screw up in 24 hours, and they'll cut his throat. So I, I went back, because... I didn't want to leave him there. I figured it'd be the end of him if I did. Four-year Marine, leave no man behind, right? Well, I was pretty pissed off at him. He was Air Force after all. And so it kind of seems like you both felt safe or somewhat comfortable during your captivity eventually in that you weren't going to get killed. How did you arrive at that belief or why? They weren't going to do anything to me because they thought something would happen to one of their people. How long was it in before they moved you from Fundishan to Barron Key of Columbia? Probably three weeks after we were there. Did they give you a reason? No, they said, well, we're going to try and get you back to the States. We're working on your passports. Because I think they didn't want as much 
heat coming down on them, you know, kidnapped two Americans, and Patricia was telling them they weren't going to get any pilots to fly for them, and I think they'd lost two or three, you know, they'd lost three loads or four by now because of our bullshit. They didn't want any trouble. I don't know for sure what the exact reason was, but it was a combination of everything, and knowing their families. Oh, you mean that while you guys were in captivity, aside from the previous lost shipment you were a part of, and then the one that you had that their guys had to dump when they took your plane back they didn't lost more since then oh yeah they they thought they would go get another airplane and bring it down and make us fly it and work off the load and they were going to make us fly the airplane from uh, Escobar's place by Barranquilla to a general in Mexico to unload it we're going to fly back and forth between Mexico and Colombia and pay off our lost shipments by flying for them that was their idea and in the process of doing that they got one of their people and got the airplane and and uh, crashed it <laughs> so they didn't have oh they crashed it they crashed an airplane yeah they crashed their own airplane perfect yeah because I, I don't know flying to Colombia to Mexico seems like a death sentence to me it doesn't seem like a good idea well no it's not a if everything goes right they're not going to kill you you know they might kill everybody but the pilot but unless you can fly the airplane you're not going to kill the pilot <laughs> no question on that, man. And thanks to Patricia as well, because obviously the government didn't help keep you guys alive or help you get out. Patricia was pretty much responsible. So uh, what were some of the other details of what she did to do that? Oh, she kept making phone calls, and she talked to Squires about a little rescue mission, and that never happened. And the DEA, she talked to them about going down to the embassy and finding out where we were and they were actually getting ready to go down there when we got out. Wait a second. Within days, Patricia has cartel wives on the phone, grandmas on the phone, and with it coming back to the point that Roberto was telling you, hey, get your girlfriend off my people's butt. And it took our government nearly 28 days to decide to try and rescue you? Oh, it took them that long to decide to try and rescue me. She called them up to tell them she knew where I was, and they wouldn't talk to her. And she said, so she called them up again. And she gave him a few details. She said, would you be interested in knowing this, this, and this, and where their wives live, and their phone numbers? Well, uh-oh, the woman knows something. So then, of course, they checked her out and found out who she knew and who she was affiliated with. And so her credentials went way up in a hurry. So basically, they let her talk to them. They just stumbled over their thumbs in Nassau and Miami and didn't get anything done. And to that end, Verlin, as a former Marine man, did the ineptitude or lack of effort to rescue you in any way sort of affect your view of America or your patriotism? Oh, I I knew they were going to stick up for us and come get us. I didn't think they ever would. I mean, we were doing that on the sly. And uh, so I wasn't too surprised. The U.S. government can and will do anything at any time. So I was not surprised about it. You know, I'm still patriotic and everything. This didn't alter your opinion of, of how you view America because you just consider this standard operating procedure, right? Well, yeah, you have to do stuff like that because the rules and regulations in this country prohibit you from getting anything done, whether it's a private business or, uh, you know, if you just go strictly by the book, you'll never accomplish anything and you're hamstrung. So that's what I was for, to ignore the red tape. Fair enough, Verlin, I guess. Um, but over the 28 days, once they didn't immediately kill you on the tarmac or immediately after arriving at the ranch house, was there not any moment or time when you truly believed, shit, they may just shoot me now? 
yeah, that would be right at the very end, uh, probably a day or two days before I got out. After the Colombians put Stockwell on the plane, Roberto sent him off to uh, Aruba, and I was left there by myself, and Roberto wanted me to go to Santa Marta with him uh, to a barbecue, and I knew damn well that they turned uh, some people loose that we had arrested in Alligator Alley, and they lived in Santa Marta. And I knew if I got in that car and went with him to Santa Marta, my ass would be grass. But at no point during captivity, anytime time Roberto would walk in to come see you in the morning or you walked out in the morning, at no time did you actually feel like you were going to be shot right then and there. Well, I was ready for it every day. I was always ready for it. But the specific time that I thought the shit was going to hit the fan was... Stockwell had just gotten out. And Roberto was going to take me to a barbecue because he figured I was his buddy by that time. And I don't know why, because he wanted us to work for him. But he was going to send us back and contact some people and get another airplane and work for him. So Roberto wanted me to go to Santa Marta with him to the barbecue. But the guy at the barbecue was one of the people that the DEA had turned loose after the Everglades bus. And if I'd gotten to the barbecue... I'd have been barbecued, so I was really nervous at that time. But he's the one that was running around getting the passport and stuff ready to get us out of there. So what was Roberto's title? Uh, he, had no, he didn't have a title. He was just a smuggler or a gopher or a captain for Escobar. There wasn't an official head honcho, would number you, three in charge. Would you have really called Roberto a gopher? No, he was high up. He wasn't a gopher. He was a higher-up individual in that, but I, I mean, you can't give him a rank. He was one of Escobar's two or three guys that he would go to. So he'd be a trusted leader. A trusted leader, you could call him that, I guess. I mean, he trusted to his guys, not necessarily to you. <laughs> no, I didn't trust him. So he was really on top of things. You had to watch what you were saying with him. Gotcha. Um, all right, so we get to the end of your captivity, and how did... How did it happen, or how did it process out that you actually managed to get out of Barranquilla, Colombia, and eventually all the way home? One day they just showed up. Roberto thought, well, I'll do you a favor. I'm going to take you to a barbecue over by Santa Marta. And if I'd have gone to Santa Marta, I would have got my throat cut right then and there. So I got Roberto. I said, let's have a couple beers. And I got him so drunk he couldn't drive to Santa Marta. So I didn't go to Santa Marta. So you were just outside of Barranquilla. So you're free of the ranch. You're technically a free man, but you're not home yet. You're getting drunk at a bar in Barranquilla. No, I'm getting him drunk in a bar in Barranquilla. Right. I'm like, you're stone cold sober-ish. Yeah, yeah I'm not, I might have had one or two, but I wasn't going to get into that particular. And so then when you, uh, I'm guessing you got into the next day, what happened then? He came and put me on an airplane. I don't know whether it's the next day or the day after that. Put me on a plane and sent me to Aruba like Stockwell and I didn't know at the time whether if I got to Aruba they were going to kill me there he said you're supposed to contact so-and-so when you get to Aruba well I never did I got a hotel and the next morning I called the DEA and told them I was out and where I was and got a flight to Miami the next morning but it wasn't that simple as just flying to Miami you had to go through Bogota and Quito first and then think quick on your feet again for fear of being killed at any moment so you pulled some more Verlin quick-thinking bullshit, right? Yeah, it was some of the 
prime ministers on the Andiapak nations. They were getting on a flight from Bogota to go to Quito to go to a meeting with the other prime ministers on the Andiapak nation. I'd gotten on the plane with a refrigeration expert and he was flying over to fix refrigeration units for a big company. And uh, I was on the plane with him. So we were just talking to each other and I said, well, I had never been here. I need help getting to the plane. I need to get out of here because, you know, I've got a sick parent back home. I had a heart attack. I told him I was a doctor. And I said, there's no flights, so I need to go to Quito to catch the flight to go back to Miami. And I don't know where the gate is and I don't know how to get there. I said, maybe your guy will take me. So he introduced me to, I know who the guy was. Met him one time, walked 50 yards with him. <laughs> Classic, man. Nothing like having another gringo be your escort to get you safely through the Bogota airport. And so you make it back to Miami in one piece. And, and then Peterson met me at the airport. Well, Peterson meets you in Miami after 28 days in cartel captivity. Stockwell's alive. He's already back home in Dothan, I imagine. Right. And you're in Miami. I'm guessing you went to Miami because your plane was there? No, because Peterson was there, because everybody was there that was associated with what we were doing. They wanted to debrief you and find out what had happened also. And, and so I went to, uh, went to Miami. Was Charlie Andrews helpful in any way? with your rescue? I'm sure he was on the two meter radio or, or the ham radio and working stuff behind the scene to try and, and get me out. But uh, I don't know how much, it never did tell me how much they really did that I didn't, I wasn't there, I didn't know about. Did he ever tell did. you about how he felt when the plane rolled up and you were kidnapped? Oh yeah, he was pretty shocked about that. He was on the helicopter while they were chasing it. And they landed at Key West, and the door opened, and I wasn't there. Charlie told me, he said, what the fuck? He said, I didn't know whether you were dead. He said, I had to wing it on the fly there. And so we had to decide real quick whether to let these guys go because there wasn't anything on the plane. So we decided to take the plane and let them go uh, until we found out what happened to you. Okay, and so you had those meetings. Uh, there's this distrust going on, but... You just sat there in Dothan doing nothing? No, I tried to resurrect. And at any point, did you specifically ask about the field indictment that's just sitting out there sealed someplace with your name on it? No, I said everything cleaned up. And to me, that meant everything cleaned up. I didn't didn't say specifically that. So, so to me, meaning cleaned up means my record's clean, it's clean, I'm clean, everything's good. You know, everything's up to snuff and I'm good as gold. So that's what I thought. What you're saying is you had one debrief session with Peterson, Pulley, and Andrews, and that was it. So when you returned back home safe, did you ever fully debrief with Charlie Peterson, Pulley, or the sheet? Charlie Peterson met me one time in the hotel room, and one time in the office for about an hour. And that was the only debriefing I had with him. The sheet was later on. It was quite a bit later. And I gave him all the <laughs> phone numbers that I had uh, everywhere in Miami, uh, whoever was associated, I had all the phone numbers. I still got all the phone numbers. Did Pulley really ever have anything to do with the eventual outcome of your life story? No, other than talk about it. <laughs> he just didn't. <laughs> I've talked about rescuing me or getting me out of trouble. He never did anything. He never moved anything to get it done. 
And then they told they had the airplane at Homestead Air Force Base. By that time, they'd flown it up by Keys, and they said I could have it and fly it home. And I said, no, I'll just fly commercial. I didn't feel good. I mean, after that many days, and you had diarrhea, and I didn't feel up to snuff to fly in an airplane. Your Navajo plane was where? Homestead Air Force Base, Homestead, Florida, just south of Miami. This is actually a suburb of Miami. For all practical purposes, it's Miami. That's where the plane had gotten taken after they arrested the Cubans in Key West. Somebody flew it from Key West to Homestead, Florida Air Force Base. Yeah. And that's where it was sitting. But you went home commercial all the way to Dothan? Uh, To Tallahassee. All the way from Miami to Tallahassee, Florida. There's no commercial flight running into Dothan, Alabama. So, yay team, uh, you're finally free, <laughs> and you're on a, a commercial airline going all the way from Aruba now to basically the end of the line that would have been for Glenn and for you, Wright Verlin, would have been Tallahassee, Florida. Right, that's what the last commercial flight would as close to Dothan as you could get. How, how ironic, you're back in Tallahassee. Isn't that where you were briefly in jail? Oh, yes, it was. Did you go by and say hi to any of your old friends? <laughs> no, I think I think they were all gone by then. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to ask. So you get off the plane in Tallahassee, and the person who picked you up at the plane was? Judy Popeil, a, a girlfriend of mine. She came down to uh, Dothan with me and was in Dothan. She's helped me with a bold weevil contract and lived with me for, oh, six months. She was in Dothan at the house, and so she came and picked me up. She knew what I was doing, but I never talked to her in captivity because she would have blown the whole thing. I mean, she would would have said the wrong thing right off the bat. She'd have got me killed. So Judy's in Dothan. She's living with you. She's your girlfriend. And you don't come home. So are you telling me that for now, what is probably about 31 days, Judy has no knowledge of your existence? She was in touch with the DEA. They knew about her. They told her I was alive. But I didn't get home, you know, instantly when I got out of captivity. So I was home within 24 hours. Okay, but how far into captivity did Judy know you were in captivity? A day, a two, a week? No more than two. Two days or two weeks? Two days. So she knew from right off the bat you were alive and you were kidnapped. Yeah, she knew that. So she picked you up. You drive back to Dothan. You don't feel well. You're home. You walk in your house. What happens? Well, she was planning to move out, and there was $35,000 that were in the freezer was gone. And I would have given it to Christy, but I figured she was too young to handle at the time, and I didn't want her involved in anything. And I didn't think Judy could go through $35,000 in 30 days. But whatever she did, she did. It was gone. She's stolen $35,000 cash from you. Yeah. Which I believe was the same amount of money you owed Max Nichols. She's driving all the way from Dothan to Tallahassee. That's not a short drive. She knows she's taken 35000 cash from you, and she's driving you back home. When you walk in the house, what is she thinking? Well, I think she was probably scared to death. I said, well, where did all that go? I said, it was here. How come you're out of money? Where did you spend it? And I don't know where she went down to the Bahamas once, but it was gone. So we got everything straight a little bit. And because I knew the government still owed me money. I still had the airplane. And I was planning on working back in with them again and making some more money, you know, flying for them. And Patricia says, you need to come up here to Washington and meet with Senator Heflin. So I told Judy I needed to go to Washington. Then I went to Washington, D.C. for a day, and I came back, and she was gone again. And I never saw her again. She packed her shit up, and she was gone.
but this whole time you were gone uh you got back to dothan was everything else just fine besides your thirty-five thousand? oh no i got back and the ag cap was gone and the tank tailor was gone and the whole thing about weevil contract was toast why well, Max came and got it. Instead of getting somebody to fly the airplane, told him I had the damn money. He came down there and just got into everything anyway. I mean, he'd flown down and talked to me one time, and I said, I'll, I let him in on what I was doing. I said, I'll get you the money when I get back. There was no reason for him to do what he did. He just did it. He knew you were in captivity? Yeah, but I don't know whether he thought I was in captivity or whatever he thought. He just went and got the, got the airplanes and the equipment, and he took the tank trailer and the pickup home, and he took the airplane and sold it back to Mid-Continent Aviation. Hold up a second. Judy was supposed to be working with you with the Bow Weevil contracts. She was actually your girlfriend, but your sort of employee. How come Judy just didn't make the phone call so to get a pilot for the Bow Weevil? She wasn't that sharp. Oh, good to have those employees. Well, that takes quite a bit of doing to get somebody to fly your airplane and get certified and turn them loose with a $100,000 piece of equipment and chemical and she wouldn't have known where to get the pilot to do it and you had to get the right one it wouldn't have taken one day with the wrong guy to get the whole thing screwed she'd have had to call the bow weevil people and have them get me a pilot to do it and i don't know whether she was upset because i was missing or gone or wasn't important at that point in time so max just comes down because i guess this is the way it works in plane land you just show up and take someone's plane and no one questions it so he takes your plane back because you owe him 35 grand she steals 35 grand from you you lose your bow weevil contracts and now you're sitting in Dothan, Alabama. Now, once again, you got no plane for the future. You got no contracts for the future. But your smuggling plane is down in Homestead, Florida. You said Patricia called you, wanted to set up a meeting with Heflin, right? Yeah, I rescheduled a meeting with Heflin. So she told me I needed to get to Washington right away. So that's where I went within the next couple of days. So you turned around, got yourself back down to Homestead, said hi to Kenny and Charlie, maybe? Yeah, I had to to get the airplane. They had to take me out there and get the airplane out of the lockup and refuel it for me and give it to me. And, and so you get in the plane and you fly to Gatorsburg, Maryland, a place very few people have ever been. Just right side of Washington, D.C. All the Beltway people live in Gatorsburg, Maryland. It's a affluent, snooty neighborhood. Great. And you flew there because Patricia lived there at the time. She was working in the Bahamas for a company. And so you landed and you saw Patricia. Saw her for the first time since the Bahamas. And we went to see Senator Heflin and told him what was going on and how everything was doing. And I was there a couple of days and I went back to Dothan and Judy had bailed. She was gone. I didn't know where she went. She took the car and it split. You were only in Gatorsburg, Maryland, for a couple of days. Now you met with Heflin. Yes. And you told me that you and you sunk the tapes during captivity that you had other tapes weren't those in the house in dothan yeah those were still there judy didn't take the tapes that i had but you didn't take them to gatorsburg maryland to the meeting with you no i didn't i kept my hands on them i wasn't going to turn them over to anybody i kept them for security i didn't just go up and dump 35 hours of tapes in the hands of the federal government to see what would happen to them right but you had them with you or did they stay in dothan they stayed in dothan so you're in Gatorsburg a couple days, and that was enough. What was your reason for going back to Dothan at that moment in time? Well, Stockwell was in Dothan. My house was in Dothan. And I thought, well, I'll resurrect the uh, government contracts with Peterson. 
So that's what I was trying to do, use my airplane. I had enough money. They paid me in Miami when I got back. They gave me a certain amount of cash. So I had money. And I sure wasn't going to give it to Max. Well, no, Max already got his money back. Yeah. So you're back at home. Did you set up a meeting with Peterson? Did you go visit anyone? No, I talked to Peterson about lining some other work up and talked to Pulley about lining some other work up. And they were kind of backdooring me, kind of standoffish. Didn't really want to line something up. They didn't know exactly where I stood. I think they thought I really wanted to be down there and I really wanted to work for the cartel. They thought that I was going to work for the cartel. They didn't trust me. So that's a good thing I had that meeting with Heflin. Peterson didn't think so, but I think the rest of them were kind of, well, I think he's still going to work for the cartel, and he may have done something while he's down there. And so they were not sure about anything. So we had a couple other meetings, and and I called and I told him, I said, you need to straighten this mess out. I said, because that's going to follow me. I don't know who knows about this. I don't know what law enforcement agency knows about it. I don't know what you've got in your records. I don't know how all this crap is going to jam me up. But if I'm going to work for you, or the fact that I've worked for you, you need to clean all this mess up. And that concludes yet another tremendous docu-podcast episode for Shadow of a Mercenary, the life story of one Verlin Keys. I'm your host, Kevin E. West. Please subscribe, share it with friends, and until next time, stay safe and smart.